As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So, Mike, we just wrapped up season eight, which was all about product failures. Yeah, those were some pretty fascinating stories to tell. And now I'd like to do something we haven't done before. Okay, and that is? Jump right into a new season. New artwork, new theme, the whole shebang. That is pretty ambitious. I like it. I'm in. All right. (laughs) What's the topic? (laughs) What are we going to do? Drum roll, please. Okay, uh, I'm doing the drum roll here. (laughs) (laughs) Product journeys. So in season nine. Yes, nine. Thank you. I thought we could tell the stories of how a product or a feature or even a company 
evolved. All right, I like this. And to kick it off, I wanted to tell the story of the Square Reader, that famous credit card reader developed by the Twitter co-founder and CEO Jack Dorsey, but also with Jim McKelvey and Tristan O'Tierney. Yeah, and I heard you got an interview with someone on the inside. That's right. I caught up with Jesse Dorgusker, who was formerly the director of engineering at Apple. He was working on the iPad, the iPhone, various accessories, and then he left Apple in 2011 and joined this tiny startup known as Square to be their hardware lead. This is going to be good. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So the idea for Square all started with a glass blower. Who was making faucets and art installations and other pieces of art and was trying to sell his artwork and lost the sale for a couple thousand dollars because he couldn't accept a credit card. And he's uh, he's an amazing guy, Jim McKelvey. And he was he was mad. He was pissed. That's Jesse Dorgusker talking about Jim McKelvey losing a sale because he couldn't accept an American Express card. And now here's Jack Dorsey from a talk he did in 2011 at Stanford University. One day he called me up on his iPhone and I picked up my iPhone and he was frustrated because he just lost a sale of a $2,000 piece of glass that he had just made because the woman who wanted to pay him only had a credit card and he couldn't accept a credit card. And we're both wondering, you know, you have this general purpose computer next to your ear. Why were you not able to make that sale? And we decided that he would come out and we would take a month. We would hire one other programmer to work on the client side and uh, build the hardware out. And I would build this, the server software and then answer that question. And in a month, we, we built a very early prototype. Now, initially, they called this project Squirrel, but quickly renamed it Square. It was a smart move. Yeah. Well, and within that month, they developed their first prototype of the Square Reader where using the audio jack and an iPhone, they were able to build a prototype that could charge money, create a receipt, and email it to the purchaser. And Jack Dorsey jokes that during this time, he was able to go around to all the VCs in Silicon Valley and charge them $5 to up to $50 just to hear his idea. Yeah, apparently he raised their first $600 this way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, <laughs> we should mention here that the early reader, it wasn't this elegant piece of hardware that they would eventually make. The first prototype used this giant like six by four inch black credit card reader that connected to the phone through this long gray wire. Yeah, it looked like they took one of those old credit card swipers you'd see in a major department store, pretty much removed the keypad and then soldered an audio cable to it. Yeah, even Jack Dorsey, he needs to start somewhere. It wasn't until their second iteration that they developed the sleeker square look. Now, Dorsey, being the product person he was, wasn't going to stop at innovating the card reader, right? He wanted to rethink the whole purchase experience. Payments is another form of communication. It's another exchange of value. And the really interesting thing about payments in the financial world is no one's really designed it. If you think about it, every single person in this world has some connection to money and they all hate it. <laughs> at some point, or, the, at some point or, or another, you're going to hate some aspect of money. So there's never been anyone who's really designed a payments platform or an exchange of value or a currency that's really beautiful and that's really thoughtful and that engages uh, a user experience around communication instead of 
purely the, the service of and the mechanics of transferring that value. So when we were building Square, we, we realized that, wow, the receipt is something that's never really been designed or looked at. I go up to a coffee store and I hand them my credit card. I say, I want a cappuccino. I hand them my credit card and they type in cappuccino on their little terminal, which is basically a calculator on top of a cash box. And then they get $3.24 from that. They get a receipt. Then they take that amount and they go over and they type that amount into the credit card terminal. Then they swipe the card and then they get that receipt and then they hand me that receipt and I sign for that receipt and then I give it back to them. And then they take that receipt, take the other receipt, staple it together with a little coffee card and then give me all that and I throw that paper away. <laughs> it's useless. And it's, it would be so easy if you built a cohesive system to actually, and that carries the entire transaction to create a receipt that is useful. With one swipe, I can sign on an electronic screen, get rid of paper completely. But with that one swipe, I learn of the merchant's Twitter handle. I learn of their Facebook page. I learn of their Yelp account. I learn of their menu, their hours, whatever they want to put on their receipt, they can put there. But it can be used as a publishing medium and something that you can interact with instead of something that you just, it's a, it's a burden to uh it's a burden to receive at the time this really was a whole new purchase experience a credit card swiped right on an iphone and then a receipt's emailed to me i mean i don't remember anybody else doing it back then no it was wild so it took square another year and a half ish before they were able to take the whole experience to the market yeah and in that time they raised around 10 million dollars at a 40 million dollar valuation all before they launched their initial product and that launch coming up after a quick break when Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country, or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And, backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att. Com. That's business.att.com. So the public launch of Square finally came on December 1st, 2009 with a TechCrunch spotlight. So it's, it's live today. We're here at Psychbass Coffee on 7th and Folsom in beautiful San Francisco. And uh, MG just bought um, me a coffee. Thank you. Um, with with Square, so so they're actually accepting Square payments right now, um, and you just use your your Visa or Mastercard to, to do that. That's great. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thank you. That was Jack Dorsey talking with MG Siegler at Sight Glass Coffee in San Francisco after MG had just purchased a coffee for. Jack using the Square Reader. Square was now officially the first mobile credit card reader that worked with mobile devices. This was on December 1st. By December 7th, Jack Dorsey was making the rounds on all the major networks showing off the Square Reader. Um, here's Dorsey actually on a CNBC segment. That's uh, that's pretty Dennis. cool, Jack Dorsey. It's Dennis Neal back here in Inglewood Cliffs. I just have a question for you. It seems to me that it would be an awful lot easier for me to just peel off three single dollar bills and hand it to the guy. That was a lot for a $3 transaction. 
That, that was a lot. But the thing is, most people are not carrying checkbooks anymore. They're not carrying more than $60 of cash. Carrying cash around is, is actually quite complicated and in some cases cumbersome, but everyone has this plastic device in their pocket. You have just made my day because now, now I'm going to be paper free. Um, so at this point, it's safe to say the Square Reader was on its way to becoming a huge hit. The company, as they still do today, would send customers a free reader when you signed up. And, and this was just a huge draw. Yeah, and it was such a sleek piece of hardware, too. Unlike anything a small business could use, at least at the time. And to get it in everybody's hands like that, like without even charging for the device itself, I I'm sure it was expensive up front, but it was definitely a powerful marketing move. I remember getting my first square reader in the mail and being incredibly excited to use it for the first time. Yeah, what did you use it for? So I was actually a freelance web designer, developer, and I was working with a number of local companies in Las Vegas. And believe it or not, it was so much easier to walk into their office with a square reader and charge a credit card <laughs> than it was to wait for the check to maybe someday eventually, you know, arrive in the mail. All right. Yeah. I remember getting my first square card reader too, and I used it for not really anything. I just kind of wanted to get one and, <laughs> and I'm like, hey, you never know. I think I did use it for a garage sale eventually, um, okay. made, a, made a few sales on that. Uh, but anyway, the hardware caught the eye of Jess Dorgusker as well, who was the director of hardware at Apple at the time. Uh, at the time, I was working at at Apple, and the connection of the Square Reader to Apple and the iPhone and eventually the iPad was a big part of their story. So I was pretty in tune with it from the very beginning. And about a year and a half after their initial launch, he joined the company. I joined maybe a year and a half or two years into their journey. Uh, they built the first Square Reader on their own, and their their focus was to build the simplest, least expensive, most accessible thing they could add to a modern smartphone to add a, add credit card acceptance. Uh, and they really focused on making it as simple as possible because they believed then, and we believe now, that making it simple and inexpensive is the way to approach the most possible people in the world with this kind of technology. Uh, so I joined a couple of years later to turn this into a really high volume portfolio of hardware products that help advance our, our payments and software mission. And when he joined, there were still a very small team with lots of issues to figure out. So when I joined Square, there was only one hardware product, one software product. It was this Square Reader that connected to the app on a phone. Uh, volumes were small but growing. Manufacturing was let's say chaotic. Uh, and it was pretty obvious that Square was going to be a big and meaningful comp company, not just in the United States, but globally and, and building a world-class design engineering manufacturing operation was going to be essential. The hardware team was just five people when I started, uh, no one on the manufacturing side, no one on the firmware side. It was just really a tiny organization and I was brought in to figure out what it meant to develop hardware at a company whose sole purpose was not to make and sell hardware, uh, but to provide a broader service. And this is a key point here. I mean, most payment processors at the time were simply processing engines, middlemen who provided very little value beyond facilitating the transaction pretty much nameless and faceless. But Square always had a bigger mission, much thanks to Dorsey's ability to narrate their company's vision. Here's Dorsey talking again in 2011 about how he learned to build that story. That also encouraged me to, to really write more and to really think about, you know, what is, what is the story? What, how are people coming to this? And like when I show my friends this, how are they going to react? 
and I would write it down. I, I would actually treat it like a play. Uh, and, and, and when I realized that I was writing plays, I, wrote, I read a lot more plays um, for style and for substance and for technique. And um, I, think it's, you know, I, think it's, I think it's really good. And I think there's another company that I've always looked towards for um, inspiration. And uh, I know a number of people in this room probably have uh, a, this similar company in mind, which is Apple. Um, Apple, I think, is run like a theater company. Uh, it has a great sense of pacing, has a great sense of story, and has a great sense of execution. And it's all about, it's all event-driven. It's all stage-driven. The stage being a billboard, or the stage being a keynote, or the stage being a product launch. Um, all of it has a very, very cohesive end-to-end -end story. I mean, you think about what happened when Steve Jobs came back to the company, the first thing he did is he killed every product line the company was working on. And for two, two years, they had no product on the market whatsoever. All they had were a bunch of posters all around the world with Steve's heroes. And it said, think different. And it was just focused on bringing up the brand and making people aware of the brand again and how the brand is aligning to this particular feeling and story. And then they came out with the iMac and then you know, built built iTunes and then the iPod and they realized that wait a minute, people are carrying music on their phones now, so we better build a phone, the iPhone. And so this this unfolding of the plot and the epic story is, has been very very interesting to watch, especially if you look back, you know, to that that time when he came back uh, to the company. So I've learned a lot from that company. Um, and other companies who operate in a similar fashion. So back to Jesse. He's now taken over this hardware team whose mission is to build a high-quality, one-of-a-kind device at the lowest cost possible. Well, the first thing to do was to make that simple and elegant reader uh, something of high-quality, high-volume, reasonable cost, really repeatable and reliable for customers. The initial ones that, that Jack and Jim made uh, were handmade by, by them in tech shop. Um, and they began to approach some high volume manufacturing techniques, but didn't really have expertise in it. So really getting a good foundation and being ironclad on supply chain manufacturing quality and upgrading um, its ability to read credit cards, because honestly, at the beginning, it was pretty mediocre at reading credit cards, uh, but it was such a tremendous value for customers that they could do it for the first time that they were able to overlook that shortcoming briefly, uh, but we really needed to tidy that up. Uh, the things we did in the in the next couple of years was think about this as a portfolio. Think about the kinds of customers we were able to talk to. And the next major product that we came out with was the Square Stand, which turned an iPad into a point of sale on a countertop. We'll be back with the launch of the Square Stand after a quick break. So Square launched in 2011, but the Square Stand launched in 2013, a couple years after the initial iPad launch. Here at Salt and Straw, we started our company using Square, and it's been amazing for us. As we started adding more stores, Square grew with us, and we were able to slowly move into these Square Stands, which have been really phenomenal, a great experience for our customers. First, the invention of the iPad was, was significant, again, putting modern consumer technology in, in many people's hands, connected to an app store, with a big, beautiful touchscreen that many people had for business purposes, but also personal purposes. And adding the square stand, again, turned that consumer device into something that business owners could really use. 
Uh, and we just observed that surprisingly big businesses were using phones and tablets in their stores to run their business for the very first time. And we had a really good opportunity to talk to them uh, through another hardware product. The Square stand launched with headlines like, I thought Square would kill off the credit card. Will Jack Dorsey's company save it instead? And Square reinvents the cash register. The Square stand launched, it was a $299 price point. And it was a stand built specifically for the iPad, which turns the device into a card swiping register. Their commercials touted, what will you do with your cash register? With images of old point of sale devices being used as everything from a paperweight to a silverware drawer. And they weren't wrong, right? I, I remember these devices popping up everywhere. Then just two years later, and just six years after their initial launch, Square moves to IPO in 2015. So much talk about uh, where you came in, where you priced uh, before we talk about where it's trading right now. What does that mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for tech? I mean, what it means for us is this is a moment. We're entering a new market, and uh, and we're you know we're really excited just to get back to work. I mean, this is a, we have a long-term view on our business and and where we need to go and what we need to do, and we just want to build good tools that people love. Uh, Fred Wilson blogs today. Sometimes you just need to get the deal done. The terms might suck, but the cash doesn't. So you do the deal, and you live to fight another day. Does that, does that sum up how you feel? Uh, he's he's absolutely right. I mean, it's all about getting the business and accelerating the business. And, and that's what we came here to do today. And we did it. Yeah. Amazingly, this was just a couple months after Dorsey returned to Twitter to also take over as CEO. Jack Dorsey is widely known as the heart and soul of Twitter, being the founder and original creator of the service. He's back as CEO today, permanent CEO, after Dick Castell announced that he would be stepping down in June. Jack's been in since July 1st, and ever since then, he's been pushing the product forward. Apparently, a lot of the problems that have been happening internally is, you know, things, good ideas have been shelved, and people are afraid to step forward. And Jack is breaking apart all that bureaucracy, and things are shipping. They're playing around with polls. There's a rumored Project Lightning that we could see sometime soon. And I think a lot of people are excited to see him back for numerous reasons. Wall Street's happy. Stock's up 5% on his return. Also, big shifts to the board, Dick Costello stepped down, removing one of its former CEOs, and as well as Adam Bain is stepping up to the COO role. He's been ahead of partnerships and monetizing the service, which he's actually done a really good job at. Jack promises that the entire board composition will be remade. Now, given Adam Bain and Jack Dorsey's history together, pushing product, pushing monetization, I mean, good things are to come. With this news, it's interesting to note that Jack Dorsey will remain CEO of Square, a company founded in 2009, which is actually a few blocks away from Twitter itself. Historically, there haven't been a lot of CEOs that have done the double duty, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs being two of them, and it'll be interesting to see how Jack Dorsey rises to the challenge. And since 2015, Dorsey has remained co-CEO of both public companies. Yeah, as for Square, they've soldiered on continuing to innovate in the payment space. Adding to our strategy, our original strategy was really to complement the great consumer devices that people have, the phones and tablets that Apple, Google, Samsung, and others make around the world. Um, in addition to that, we added the Square Register and the Square Terminal, which do not rely on a phone or tablet. They are fully integrated top to bottom running a square operating system, turn it on, sign in, and you're running your point of sale right there in an integrated device. And the insight there was that the complexity of managing personal devices in a business setting is sometimes too much, especially for larger businesses, where they spend all their time 
sharing their iTunes IDs or signing people into the Google Play Store and managing Apple and Google's uh, operating system updates when it's not really what their business is all about. So we've added to our product line to have both accessory products that connect to those amazing devices, but also uh, once we felt confident in our own abilities to deliver at that high level of quality, uh, integrated devices that satisfy the mobile business and the countertop business. So what started as a simple but innovative credit card reader over a decade ago has become a full line of point-of-sale hardware and software solutions servicing everyone from large business chains like Starbucks to small mom-and-pop shops across the globe and even Mike's uh, garage sale. <laughs> yeah, and even today, Square still continues to iterate. We're always looking forward. Um, even though we have a nice tight product portfolio and it looks like everything is exactly as it should be. I hope that's how it looks and feels. Um, we, we, we do a tremendous amount of prototyping and there's a lot of stuff on the shelf that's, that's great or almost good or terrible or just not yet, or we, we missed the window. So, you know, I never like to make product development look or, or sound like it's easy and clean. It's not. It's a lot, a lot of gritty uh, prototyping and mistakes and, and refinement over time. Um, we have a really good handle on what our core technologies are. I think every business needs to know what's essential to them and what's not essential. For us, secure card payments is essential. It's why we develop our own silicon and firmware and the lowest level payment stack for a, a global system of payments. It, it's in our mobile reader, it's in our countertop readers, it's the same technology and we own it, know it, refine it, reduce cost, improve performance, reduce chip card processing speeds. We can really own something that is essential to our customer experience. Uh, another is the, the custom operating system that runs in our terminal and register. It's the same OS, it builds out of our same build system. And again, we've mastered a piece of technology that gives us the ability to make a third product, fourth product, fifth product with those kinds of capabilities. So that's what that's how we arm ourselves to look forward. When I think about where small businesses are heading, increasingly businesses that do business in person are gonna have a higher bar set for what that in-person experience is since you can do so much online. There'll be a lot of pressure on retailers, restaurants, uh, services, businesses, to make the most use of their space, have it be uniquely wonderful to have employees who are more like concierges uh, facilitating experience, having technology that makes that in-store experience complementary to or even better than sitting at home on your sofa. And we're in a really good position to have the hardware, software, and services that stitch that together in a really nice way in the store, but also tie it back to what's happening outside the store in the other modes that the business runs. So that's how we look forward to a business that a set of businesses that will be increasingly blended across multiple channels. All right. So coming up, we'll be telling more stories of product journeys, big and small. Next week, we're going to dive into the story of Microsoft in, in the very early days, sub 50 employees and learn what they did to become the, the global behemoth they are today. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. 
Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.